Enjoy brighter radio listening with Blaupunkt Radiogram's automatic pre-select tuning. The makers of epic pure sunflower oil, purine and pret cooking fast, yum yum peanut butter, maple margarine and niblet cheese twists present the epic casebook. In which Inspector Carr investigates. Good evening. Tonight's story shows why a detective has to draw a very clear line of distinction between assumption and a definite clue. To assume something is to take something for granted without regard to fact. This a policeman has to be very careful about. A clue is a very different kettle of fish altogether. At the police college, they'll tell you that clues revealed during an investigation are facts or basic principles that serve as a guide. But these are concrete things like fingerprints, false alibis and so on. Not that assumption is not important. Of course it is. But what is equally important is that line of demarcation between what one assumes and what one knows to be a positive fact. In every murder investigation, one makes a number of assumptions. I will freely admit that in tonight's story, we got onto the track of the killer eventually not because of the clues. In fact, we had too many of them, but because I worked on a basic assumption which led me to the identity of the murderer. Let me tell you about it. It concerns the strangulation of a young woman. A story as I called Crossed is the telephone line. The Middle Temple at the Inns of Court, which is the Middle Temple of what is known as Lincoln's Inn and Gray's Inn, with its quiet, peaceful, if somewhat bleak, legal atmosphere, is hardly the place where one would expect to find the victim of a brutal killing. Yet that is where Marjorie Heathcliff met her death. Your Sergeant Berry? Yes, sir. Bow Street Police. I've taken statements from the man who found the body, the caretaker. Where are they? Uh, in that office over there, sir. I see. According to operations, the man's name is Kramer, and the cleaners are Mr. Newman. That's right, sir. I present him with my compliments. Tell him I won't be a moment. Dr. McPherson and I will take a look at the body. Horrible. You know, Inspector, I've been associated with violent crime, brutality, for more years than I care to remember. But a sight like this, a young woman in her prime of life, still makes my blood boil. As well it might. The body was lying on the floor of what looked like a neat and tidy office. But there was nothing tidy about the corpse. The full horror of the crime that was done to her was there, expressed on her face. She was lying on the floor, her knees drawn up, her arms tucked under her, as though she was using her office floor as a place to rest. It was when I looked at the corpse from another angle and was able to see her face that the full horror of the crime became apparent. Her eyes seemed to be popping out of her head. 
Her jaw sagged down from an open mouth, her lips blue, the color of her skin, an ashen white. All unmistakable signs of strangulation. Poor girl. How old would you say she is, Mag? 25, 26? Somewhere around there, I should see. What's her theory? Well, judging from the position of the body, it looks as though she was walking to the front office when somebody attacked her from behind. You see here, Inspector? Hmm? She was killed with either a piece of string or a length of cord or something. Ah. The place been searched? Did they find anything? No, not a thing as yet. Oh, she doesn't seem to have put up much of a struggle. No, it doesn't look like it. We'll take the body back to the morgue with us. We may find something in her fingernails. It doesn't look like it, though. Mm. All right, then, you do that, Mac. I'll have a word with this Mr. Kramer. Time to... Oh, I'm sorry to have kept you. Are you Mr. Kramer? Yes, sir, I am. And you're Mr. Newman, the caretaker? Yes, sir, I am. It's like something out of the movies, ain't it? We are, sir. I'll never be the same again. Mr. Newman, I'm sorry to trouble you. Now, why don't you go and make yourself a nice cup of tea? I'd like a word with this gentleman here. Uh, yes, sir. No, sir. What were you doing here? I came here by appointment. If that's Marjorie Heathcliff lying out there, then she's the one I'm supposed to see. Have you met her before? No, she phoned me at my hotel. When was this? About half past four this afternoon. You see, these guys, Wright, Sims, and Cheatham, they act as my English lawyers. Did you say you've never met the girl? Listen, Inspector, I'm on a multi-million dollar concern and I'm not easily rattled. But you don't come across a dead body every day of the week, do you, Don? No, I don't suppose you don't. Now, I come to think of it, uh, she said I'd seen her before when she telephoned me at the hotel, I mean. Well, let's get back to basics. You say that this young woman, Marjorie Heathcliff, telephoned you? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm being sued for divorce by my wife, Elaine. She's asking for a million dollars alimony. That's why I'm over here right now. When the telephone rang, I thought it might be my ex-wife. Hello? Mr. Kramer, there's a lady on the phone. Wants to speak to you urgently. If that's my ex-wife, tell her I want nothing to do with her. Tell her to speak to my lawyers. Tell her... Tell it's her a young lady to... named Marjorie Heathcliff. She said she's from Right Things and Cheetham, your solicitor. Oh, that's different. Uh, put her on, please. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Speaking. It's Marjorie Heathcliff here. You remember, sir, I was taking down the notes of the consultation this afternoon. Yeah, what is it? Uh, has something come up? Well, sir, do you remember how disappointed you were that the private detective hadn't been able to get anything on Mrs. Kramer? Well? Well, I've just found a letter in the office from your wife to one of the partners. Sir, you know if you can prove infidelity, she can't hope to win her case. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> she's too smart for us all. Now she's trying to get me for a million dollars. Suppose I tell you, sir, I've got written proof. She's been having an affair with one of my bosses. I found a letter to prove it. It's dynamite. It's addressed well, to... Well, are you trying to tell me that she's having an affair with one of my lawyers who's supposed to be fighting the case for me? Quick, sir, I can't talk anymore. They're buzzing for me. Everyone goes at six o'clock. I used to stay on to do a bit of swatting. There'll be nobody here except me. I must fly. See you tonight. Hello. Hello. Hello, Miss Heathcliff. Hello. Hello, hello. Oh, now, let me get this right, Mr. Kramer. The girl had come into possession of some information vital... Vital, sir, is almost an understatement. <laughs> if that girl had been able to give me the information I needed, she'd have been set up for life. 
I don't know whether you've been reading the newspapers, Inspector, but my wife is better known as Elaine Talmadge. At least she was an actress until she latched onto my bank account. Well, there's a motive, all right. It looks as though somebody strangled her to stop her giving you the information you wanted. Well, I... Can't you see what this means, Inspector? If what this girl Heathcliff said on the telephone is true, that my wife has been having an affair with one of my legal now, representatives... Now, let's leave that line of inquiry at the moment. You came here because of a telephone call. And what time is it? About uh, 20 after 7. Now, just a moment, Mr. Kramer. You say that this girl telephoned that she had some shattering information at approximately half past four. I know what you're going to say, Inspector. The fact is, I had an urgent call booked to New York. Uh, this you can verify. I didn't get the call until about uh, 7 o'clock. So you got here at about 20 past 7. And then what happened? Why, I paid off the cab and saw somebody go through the front door. Always keeps the blooming lights on, they do. A waste that goes on in this place. Are you looking for something? I've got an appointment with Miss Heathcliff. Oh, so that's why the lights are on. Uh, well, that's the office through there. Uh, come on, Susan. Blimey! Blimey! Miss Heathcliff! Police! The girl had something to tell me, and somebody strangled her so that she couldn't tell anybody anything. You see, tell me, Mr. Kramer, did you find the letter? Well, what letter? Oh, come, come, Mr. Kramer, neither of us is a child. You say that the girl had evidence that could ruin your chances of winning the court case. Something that could cost you a million dollars, and you asked me, what letter? Didn't you have a quick look around for the vital piece of information that Marjorie Heathcliff talked about? Yes, sir, I did. I sent the caretaker out to get a cop, and I had a quick look around, but uh, I never found anything. Well, at least to being frank. Sergeant! Sir? See that this gentleman and Mr. Newman are transported to their respective homes. Right, sir. But I demand to see the police. Well, your demands are being met, sir. Come in. I'm Inspector Khan. You're stopping up. Oh, uh, sorry. My name is Sims. You're Don Tootin' right, Mr. Sims. Tell me, Mr. Sims, what did you do with it? Do with what, Mr. Gray? Don't give me that. What did you do with the evidence? That's why you killed Marjorie Heathcliff, isn't it? Whatever the motive behind the American's outburst, it certainly didn't produce the expected reaction from the man who had just been accused of murder. He gazed at his accuser with an expression of dignified hurt and said, Mr. Kramer, you're beside yourself. Beside myself, am I? Let me tell you something. Sergeant Barry, take Mr. Kramer back to his hotel. The car's waiting for you, Mr. Kramer. Good night. You haven't heard the last of this since. None of us has heard the last of each other. All right, Mr. Sims. Did I hear your partners outside? Yes, you did. Ah, come through, gentlemen. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Wright, Mr. Cheatham, this is Inspector Carr, New Scotland Yard. I won't waste your time, gentlemen, so let's get down to brass tax. It's now uh, 8.40. <coughs> did you all arrive here together? Yes, we did. Yes. Did none of you go home? Well, I didn't. There was a law society meeting at 8.15. I'd never have got home and back in time, so I stayed in town. That applies to me as well. I assume it applies to us all. We all live outside London. There was an annual general meeting, a very important one. Well, how is it you all arrived here together? Obvious, isn't it? Your highly efficient Metropolitan Police traces to the Law Society. 
The meeting hadn't started. We were having a drink when the police sergeant informed us of the shocking incident and said that you wanted us here immediately. In fact, we drove here in a police car. Uh, Mr. Sims, Mr. Wright, will you please wait in the other office? The body will be removed by now. But how did it happen, Inspector? How was she murdered and why? With respect. I'll do the questioning. You supply the answers. Are you being influenced by Kramer's extraordinary outburst? The tone in your voice seems to imply that you suspect one of us. Mr. Wright, you are a solicitor. You know that in a situation like this, we suspect them all and then start eliminating. I'd like to question each one of you alone, if I may. Featherlight, fine textured and rich tasting. That's how your cakes will turn out every time you use Mato Margarine. Mato Margarine is rich in flavor, rich in vitamins too. It does your heart good to bake a maple cake and feed them up for more. Mato. It's got lift. Because purine is pure. Purine tastes light, fluffy, and full of lift. With purine pure cooking fat, you get the taste of your own good cooking. And so, for the next hour and a half, I questioned each of the partners in turn. Dr. McFasson's first examination showed that the girl had been strangled at about seven o'clock at night. But the examination was a superficial one, and one would have to allow half an hour's error. Only one of the partners had a satisfactory alibi for the time between half past six and half past seven. I left my office at six o'clock. I called into the Aldwych Arms. I stayed about an hour. Somebody recognized me? I doubt it. The place was crowded. I then walked to the Law Society. Got there about a quarter to eight. I heard Big Ben chime at uh, 6.30. And Justice Oxbury's driver called for me to go to White's Club. I had a case to discuss with Mr. Oxbury. We did visit the club. Justice Darling then dropped me at the Law Society at about uh, 20 to 8. That evening, as I left the office, and I thought I'd walk to the Tate Gallery. There the new Brookner I wanted to see. Time did I leave my office? Well, soon after Sims. Around about 6.30. Then walked to the Law Society, got there about half past seven. That's where I met my partner. I warned each of them that they would have to make themselves available for further questioning, and they departed. By then, it was nearly 11 p.m. There was little more I could do. The next stage of my investigation would be a matter of the background into the lives of all those connected with the dead girl. That meant routine. That meant I could go home for a night's sleep. Cut. Morning, sir. Operations here. Morning. Got the information you want, Inspector? Go ahead, far away. 
Archibald Wright, age 42, married three children, lives at Howard 10, Penn, Buckinghamshire. Local police say devoted father and husband, married 14 years. Next. Malcolm Cheatham, age 39, married one child, lives at Aventure Cottage, Surrey. Rumours of quarrels, but no suggestion of divorce. Can't find a link with Mrs. Grammer, sir, but the next one's interesting. Huh? Daniel Sims, age 45, divorced, no children. Stephanie Armitage, who became wife of Silas Grammer, was cited as a correspondent. Excellent. Anything on the two of them? No, sir. Sims lives at a block of flats in Chelsea. Ex-Brands say that he and Mrs. Grammer weren't seen together. Well, never mind. You found the link we're looking for. Well done. Come in. Busy? No, come in, Doc. Come in. But the latest lab report on the Heathcliff girl is fine. Sit down. Anything interesting? Only from one point of view, Inspector. It's now confirmed that she was attacked from behind. It didn't need any kind of strength to kill her. Uh, there were fine strands on the poor girl's neck. It wasn't a rope or string, but silk. I don't suppose you've managed to find anything, huh? No. It's more than likely the killer took it with him. I've had some good news. Oh, no. Oh, what's the matter? Oh, what a fool I am, a blithering fool. I thought we were about to close the case, and it's as wide open as ever. But how? Why? Oh, I won't bore you with the details. If Kramer was telling the truth, and I think he was, the killer must have been one of the three partners. A member of the bar? Oh, that's hardly likely. It's very likely, Mac. There's no reason for him to... Now, why should Kramer, why kill her? He wouldn't know the movements of the other members of the staff at the moment's notice, nor would he go back to the scene of his crime once he got away undiscovered. I walk in here, you're as cheerful as a cricket. Suddenly your face drops. Now, what is it? One of the three partners had a strong motive for killing the girl. She was about to give information that would have ruined his career, robbed his chances of sharing a million dollars, and possibly ruining his love life. <sighs> strong motive, as I've ever heard. You're certain that the girl was killed between half past six and half past seven in the evening, right? Right. I closely questioned the three of them. One had a watertight alibi. The other two gave accounts of their movements... They can't be corroborated. Well, that certainly narrows the field down, doesn't it? After all, one of them could have hidden themselves in the office, waited until all but the Heathcliff girl had gone and strangled her. Two very good clues, motive. There's one snag. Whoever killed the girl was on intimate terms with Kramer's wife. Marjorie Heathcliff was going to name him by showing Kramer a letter to prove this. She was murdered before she could speak. You're leading up to something, Inspector. What is it? Just this. We know one of the partners had an affair with Mrs. Kramer before she married. Possibly still having an affair. Then why are you waiting? Because he's the one with the cast-iron alibi. it seemed to be. Justice Oxbury was certain that Sims had been with him between the vital hours of 6.30 and 7pm. Then, something hit me. There was another possibility. Mr. Wright, as the senior partner, have I your permission to spend an hour or two in your offices? It might give me some sort of leave. I'll do what you wish, Inspector. I realise that we're all under suspicion. All I want is for you to solve this case as quickly as you can. 
setting us all into nervous wrecks. I sympathize and understand. Now, sir, how many have you on your staff? And three clerks, two typists, and a switchboard operator. Apart from the three of us, of course. May I have a grant? Oh, please do. What with the three clerks in their black alpaca jackets, seated on high stools in stiff collars, they looked as if they'd walked straight out of a Dickens novel. As they poured over their parchments and ledgers, I decided that they were not likely to play any part in the drama. I had a talk with a switchboard girl. What happens if somebody wants to telephone? Do they ask you for the number? Oh, yes. We've only got four extensions, so you can't exactly say that I'm overworked. Mind you, I do a lot of typing as well. Mm. At about four o'clock, Marjorie Heathcliff telephoned Mr. Kramer, right? Yes. I got her the number. Are you sure you did? She didn't dial the number herself? No. I remember it, you see. There was such a mix-up. Mix-up? Yes. One of the partners was ringing for me to get a number. <coughs> yes, Mr. Sims. <coughs> Mitchell and Company, just hold on, please. <coughs> Hello? Yes? Yes, Marjorie? Mr. Kramer? At the White Hotel? All right, dear, just hold on. What do you mean you've got a fortune on your hands? Wait a minute, I've got to get a number for Mr. Sims. What's all the excitement about? Well, hold on, I'm... Hello? Yes? Oh, Mr. Sims, yes, Mr. Sims, I'm getting your number right now. That was the last time I spoke to her alive. Isn't it terrible? Oh, what did you do? You got Mr. Kramer for Miss Heathcliff, hmm? Yes, sir. You see, Mr. Sims' number was engaged. So while I was holding on for Mitchell and Company, I got through to Mr. Kramer's hotel. I see. Were there many more calls? No, two going and one incoming, that's all. You sure? Positive, sir. Not with the incoming calls? Well, there was only one for Mr. Wright, his wife. And the outgoing call? Well, I record those. I've got them in my book. Here you are, sir. Mr. Sims phoned Justice Oxbury to remind him of that appointment that evening. And... Well? Oh, I don't know who the other call went to, sir. Mr. Sims asked me for a line. Good. Thank you very much. You've been very helpful. At last, what looked like a jigsaw puzzle became a pattern. I needed to question Mrs. Kramer in order to be certain. Mrs. Kramer... I'm inquiring into the death of a Miss Marjorie Heathcliff. You read about it in all the papers, I suppose? Yes, I have, Inspector, but I don't think I can help you. How well do you know Mr. Daniel Sims? I know that the firm of Wright, Sims and Cheatham are acting for my husband. Is that all? Have you never met or spoken to Daniel Sims? What has that got to do with... Please answer my question. Well, I knew him a long time ago. You're an intelligent woman, Mrs. Kramer. And a very good actress. But that's not waste time. He got divorced because of you, didn't he? I said we knew each other a long time ago. Madam, are you trying to tell me that Sims didn't phone you the afternoon of the evening the girl was killed? Who said he did? Supposing I tell you that the switchboard girl... Did she listen in? So you did talk to him? Yes. And did he mention to you the letter, the letter that Sims so foolishly left lying around, a letter that the dead girl could have got a thousand pounds I for? don't know anything about the letter. He did mumble something. I don't know what he was talking about. 
I was very busy. Everyone knows that switchboard girls have very vivid imaginations. He didn't mention the Heathcliff. Where were you between the hours of six, seven, thirty? I don't know. I think up at the West End shopping. Why? Madam, I have a search warrant here. We never found the incriminating letter. But I did find a not insignificant link in the chain of evidence. It was a number of loose pearls in a dressing table drawer. Is that what you did? Remove the silk thread to use on that poor unfortunate girl? I didn't do it! He must have done it! I know nothing, nothing about it! By then, I was sure that she was the murderess, but I had to get final proof. Why did you phone Mrs. Kramer on the afternoon of the murder, Sims? I didn't, didn't you? You overheard Marjorie Heathcliff tell Mr. Kramer that she had a letter proving you were having an affair with Mrs. Kramer. Proof that destroyed all hope of getting that million-dollar settlement. You heard the girl say that she would wait for Kramer in her office. It was you that urged your lover to commit murder. You're as guilty as she is. Even with your cast-iron alibi, you'll swing, Sims. Swing for the murder. No, no, no. Yes, I, I warned Stephanie what was happening. But I swear to you that I didn't know that she was going to do this terrible thing. When I heard of the murder, well, I knew what had happened, but I was not an accomplice to it. I had no idea that Stephanie would drive to our offices and strangle this girl. I swear it. When Stephanie confessed to me, I... I, I she didn't... confessed to you, did she? Well, congratulations, Inspector. I hear that Mrs. Kramer and Sims are accusing each other now. Each saying the other was responsible. Yes, each is as guilty as the other. They'll both pay the penalty, all right. How did you get on to the woman? It's a funny thing. We had definite clues involving Sims. But as for Mrs. Kramer, there were no facts to go on. But there was a strong assumption. An assumption? Yes. Who's this? Well, listeners, do you know what that assumption was? Not sure? Well, I'll be back to tell you after you've listened to the commercial. <laughs> Well, listeners, as I told you before the story commenced, there are times when assumptions are as important as facts. What was the assumption in this case? We knew that Sims asked the switchboard girl for a telephone line. Why? It was this. He didn't want anyone to know that he was visiting his lover. And who else but Mrs. Kramer? Then there was the silken thread used to kill the girl. Having worked on an assumption, the thread was the clue that a woman was involved. Sims and Mrs. Kramer were sentenced to life imprisonment. Oh, uh, the moral of the story? It's this. Girls, the reward for selling an office secret is poor. All you'll get is the string of the pearls around your neck. Good night. <laughs>